quick recap in case somebody happened to possibly just show up this morning and was not able to sit in last week. Last week we started a brand new sermon series titled Satan, Suffering, and Spiritual War. Uh, we looked at Job 1 last week, and I would encourage you, uh, if you're interested in really getting all out of this study there is to get, I would encourage you to go back and listen to, to uh, last week's opening sermon. Um, Job has been selected by God. Uh, God's been bragging on Job and uh, asking Satan if Satan is considered just how faithful and what a man of integrity Job is. And Satan says in chapter 1, yeah, well, of course he is. You give him everything he wants. You keep him from harm. But if you take those things from him, Job will turn on you. And we, we saw that really the heart of this book is the question of whether or not God is ever worth turning on. Is there ever a time that God is worth cursing? Is there ever a time that God deserves to have us turn our back on him and say he is not good? Because that's what Satan is arguing. Satan is arguing that really God is not worthy of our worship, that we are all just selfish people who are really secretly only in this because of what we get out of it. And if you strip us of those things, just like Satan did, we're going to turn our back on God and we're going, to, we're going to go the other direction. That's the argument that he makes in chapter 1. And in chapter 1, God says, well, let's see about that. And God grants Satan permission to destroy all that Job has. To, in essence, take it all. And Job still holds fast his integrity. In chapter 2... Where we pick that back up today, I want you to notice that uh, we've got God bringing the question back up to Satan. We've got God wanting to talk about this again with Satan. And in chapter 2, ultimately, as far as the book of Job records it, it's the last time that we see Satan say anything about Job. It's the last time that him and God have any conversations at all. And as we work through that this morning, I just want to share three observations from the first two chapters of Job. The first thing that we see is that spiritual war is about faithfulness to God through trauma. I'm going to say that again. Spiritual war is about faithfulness to God through trauma trauma. We are witnessing Job win the battle of spiritual war in his life. This is where real spiritual war happens in the mind and in the heart of all of us. When we experience trauma, when we see trauma, when we go through things that don't make sense to us, all of a sudden the battlefield of the heart and mind is engaged and the question is, what do I now believe about God? What do I now believe about God's goodness? What do I now believe about the benefits of being a child of God? Ultimately, all spiritual war is fought on this battlefield. Now, I want you to notice, in this particular situation... We have Satan unleashing real, supernatural acts of war against Job. 
But the goal, the goal is simply to get Job to turn on God. That's the whole entire goal. We have got to understand that, brothers and sisters. What I'm trying to tell you this morning is that real, biblical, spiritual war is easier to understand than what you think. The heart of it all is to get you and I to turn on God when we experience trauma. There's a very real demonic entity inflicting Job. But why? To get Job to be unfaithful to God. That's the goal. It's the motive of the attack. It's the outcome that Satan is after. Turn people against God. It is that simple. And we have to see that truth laid bare before us in the book of Job. I want to reiterate something I said last week. This is most likely the first book ever inspired by the Holy Spirit to be written. It was most likely written two or three hundred years before Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible as far as they're placed. Genesis was most likely written 200 years after the book of Job. Job is placed where it is, not because of you know its, its place in the Bible, but because it's put with the poetry books. We've got Job, we've got Psalms, we've got Proverbs, we've got Song of Solomon. But when God set out to give us the very first thing from inspired by Him to teach us about our life, what we are here for, the purpose of our relationship with Him, He shows us that there is a spiritual war waging around us, that there is an accuser that's accusing us of not having true integrity in our relationship with God. There is an accuser who is accusing God of not being worthy of being worshipped. And this accuser ultimately tries to bring trauma into our lives in an attempt to get us to turn from God, to turn away from God, to curse God, to say that God is not good, that He does not deserve my worship. This is the simplest and clearest picture of what all spiritual warfare looks like. And I'm telling you folks, it's a game changer when you truly understand that. Because it can, it can really become as simple as, and we see people coming to this statement at certain times, just like Job would say, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Just like Peter would eventually say when nearly, we you know, when thousands of people turned and left in John chapter 6, and Jesus looks at his disciples and says, are you guys going to go too? What does Peter say? Where, where else are we going to go? You're the one who holds the words of eternal life. And getting it settled in your heart that it does not matter what you face, it does not matter what you endure, it does not matter what trauma you have to experience in this life, you will not turn on God ever. That is the heart of spiritual victory, folks. And we see that the truth is so many never really arrive to that settled place of integrity. How many give up? Maybe not entirely give up, but to a degree. How many give up on being faithful to the things God has called them to do? How many people turn away and give up on the ministry? 
How many people turn away and give up on the church? Got wounded at church. Somebody did you wrong. Maybe you were really did wrong. It happens in the church. And so you give up on being faithful to the church like God's commanded you to be. Now, I know I'm talking to a bunch of people that are church this morning. I'm just making the point that there are actually degrees to which we can give up. There are degrees to which we can lay down our integrity. And we know that God's called us to something more. We know that God's called us to something deeper. We know there is a level of faithfulness that God has called us to. And we're not willing to do it because we've got our little feelings hurt about past trauma that we've been through. You have to understand this is the tactic of the enemy, folks. This is the goal. However Satan comes about it, however the enemy tries to bring about trauma in your life, it'll look a little different for you, a little different for you, a little different for me, a little different for this person, a little different for that person. But understand, the ultimate end game is the same for all of us. To get us to question God and to get us to turn on God and just say, He's not worth it. That's the goal. And I see untold multitudes falling victim to this trap. Number two this morning. We notice that Satan never abandons his strategy of relentless accusations. He never abandons the strategy. And we see that in chapter 2. What's his strategy? Accuse God of not being good. Accuse God of not being worthy of worship. Accuse God's followers of not truly being faithful. When possible, if that doesn't work, if the accusations don't work, when possible, inflict harm. Blame God for the harm. Say that God is not good. Accuse the believers of not following God. Not being true in our integrity and our faithfulness. Repeat, 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 repeat. Now, would you agree with me that for a lot of us, we can normally handle one good or one, tra- one, one decent trauma or two for a lot of us? But it's the repeat, 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 where we eventually start to get weighed down. You hear the, the, the term, the, 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 uh, he said, hey, what's the, the thread or what that broke the camel's back? The straw, there we go. The straw that broke the camel's back. Well, this happens with us spiritually sometimes. And it, it's kind of a crazy thing if you understand the aim of our enemy. When you understand that's the goal then why would we ever give in to it? But what happens is after enough times of you being done wrong, after enough times of things not going your way, after enough times of enduring trauma, after enough times of this happening and this happening, this happening, finally we start to start thinking like the enemy. And finally we start thinking, well, if God was good, then why would I go through this? Maybe those past five things, but now six, seven, and eight are stacking up. And I think there's some weight to this argument that maybe God does not really love me like I think he does. 
Folks, the devil is relentless with his accusations. He will never stop accusing God. He will never stop trying to inflict pain and trauma into this world and into your life and into my life. And then he'll never stop accusing God of not being good for allowing it to take place. He is a liar. It is who he is. And, And I want you to note we see this in his second conversation with God. Now, before I look at what Satan said, I want us to note what God said. Notice again, God is bragging on Job. I hope that I can be the type of person that God can brag on. When you look at this context, so remember in Job chapter 1, Satan simply said you take all of his stuff and you allow disaster to come upon him. Well, he'll turn on you. God says, okay, let's show you. Satan does exactly what he was allowed to do. Job does exactly what God said that Job would do. And notice when Satan comes in front of God again, the picture that we get is that Satan's just kind of hoping we don't have to talk about this. Like he's not going to bring it up. And so God does. And God asks Job the exact same identical question, or God asks Satan the exact same question that he did in chapter 1. Have you considered my servant Job, who's blameless and upright in all of his ways? There's none like him. But then he adds to it, who kept his integrity when you said he wouldn't? It's awesome. Man, that's awesome. And the accuser, because he can't do anything else, takes it up a notch, and he actually makes a swipe at Job's worship in the end of chapter 1. Job says, naked I came into the world, naked I returned, blessed be the name of the Lord. Satan says, yes, skin for a skin. Man will do anything for his life. He says, I heard what he said. You heard what he said too, God. Let's get to the bottom of what he really meant. What he meant was, he'll do anything as long as You know, he'll serve you as long as you don't take his life. You let harm and disaster come upon everybody else, even upon his own children. And he's just saying, as long as you, you know, protect me and allow me to live my life out and and just go back into the world the way I came in, we're good. It's really a swipe at Job's act of worship. Satan, he has no other tricks. He is just a relentless accuser, folks. Satan says, yeah, right. Job's still got ulterior motives here. His own health. But you you take that from him. Now, I want you to consider something. Honestly, just consider what a stupid accusation it is. Because all of us know, all of us that are parents, you know, that you've got to be a demented, like, evil father to... um, be want, you know, want your own children to die before you. I mean, that's such a crazy accusation that Job really was okay with all of his children dying. He just doesn't want any pain coming upon himself. That's ridiculous. Any of us fathers, and I would argue mothers as well, right? If our children were suffering, we would, do, we would be, we'd, whatever we could, we would switch the spot. We would take the pain. We would, whatever it is they were enduring, I would rather endure it so they didn't have to. But here's the reality. That wasn't what happened in Job's life. 
Job's children were taken before him. And so now the devil just accuses Job of being selfish and really just wanting, you know, his own health. He is so relentless. Here's what we have to see in the text. This is his strategy. This is what he does. He never stops. He can't stop. It doesn't even matter if it's rational. It doesn't even matter if it makes sense. He's just going to accuse, 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 and accuse some more. It helps us to understand the strategy. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says this, In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Folks, we should not be unaware of the devil's schemes, his devices, his strategies, his designs, his plans. He has a strategy to take you and I down. And it ultimately is about relentlessly accusing God in our mind and our hearts. And before God, he relentlessly accuses us. For those of us who are followers of God this morning, trauma comes our way to cause a spirit of accusation against God to rise up in us. For those of you who are not followers of God, trauma comes your way to set the hook in your mind and in your heart long before you ever even consider turning to God. You begin accusing God before you ever even know who He really is. This is the goal of trauma. Satan never abandons his strategy. Never. This is not his only strategy, but it is the main strategy that Satan has. One that he never stops employing. This is simple. What I just said is not profound. But would you listen to this preacher who's been doing what I've done now for more than two decades? Would you listen to me when I tell you most of the church is failing here? Most of the church turns their backs on God, at least to some degree, when trauma comes their way. Because we are ignorant of the devil's schemes. Because we buy and believe the devil's lie. That if God is good, we should never suffer. It's a lie. It's not true. In a world where there is free will and people have the right to make choices, people can choose the wrong thing. And when people choose the wrong thing, bad things happen. It's part of living in a fallen world. We have this demonic mindset that you, I could, I, you could call it demonic. That if we are followers of God, that that means we're always going to have everything we need, that we're never going to suffer lack, that we're always just going to have money and food and wealth and power and fame and all these things. And it's just not true. And I see it. There's, there's this mentality of the Christian in our, not just our era of time. It's the first book ever written. God's teaching us something about the human experience in this book. This is about the human experience. But we get our little attitudes and think, well, 
God owes me something. And what, what we're learning here is you can never really know about your commitment to God until all of those ulterior motives are taken away. But we get our little hearts thinking like, well, God owes me something. I didn't go to church my whole life. I've been the last four months in a row. He better bless my socks off. Real. I, I, seriously. I mean, that's a, obviously a very sarcastic and funny way that I tried to say it. But trust me, that, that heartbeat is real. It's real. People get their life in a mess. And it's not even Satan. They've got themselves in their own mess. Spent money they didn't have, money they never should have spent, borrowed money they never should have borrowed if they would have just obeyed the principles of God. They're in a financial mess. Now they expect God to swoop in and just rain gold down from the sky because He's God and He can. And if He doesn't, He must not be good. People's marriages are all but over because they're fighting constantly and the husband refuses to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And the wife refuses to yield to her husband as, as yielding to Christ. And they refuse God's order and their home is chaos. And they're going to give church a three-week run to see if God can fix it. And if God doesn't fix it all magically, he's not worth serving. I know this is raw. But this is real. And we are getting our tails whipped on the battlefield of real spiritual war. Which is ultimately about trying to get you to give up on God because trauma exists. We've got to be awakened. When I'm looking for people, uh, people that I could trust for the long haul to, to be beside me in this war, this is one of the things I'm looking for. People that aren't quitters every time somebody hurts their feelings. People that don't quit because people that you sold your life into turn their back on you. Because if that's all it takes for you to quit, You'll make it about two months in the ministry. And I'm not joking. Satan's strategy of relentless accusations, it never stops. And ultimately his accusations are against God. You know, that also helps to understand that. When you hear the nonsense that comes out, there was a day and time in my life when I used to actually investigate all the things that I heard. I just wanted to. Things that te schools are teaching about God, things schools are teaching about, you know, everything from the age of the earth, the age of people, creation itself, the Big Bang, all sorts of stuff. Things that are ultimately meant to undermine God. And there was a time in my life where you should investigate it all. And it became kind of exhausting because here's what I found out. The accusations never stop. They're just relentless. They just keep coming. And, and, and I started to see this. It's, just, it's a worldwide theme. 
that there is this constant entourage of, of information that's meant to undermine God. It's meant to undermine the integrity of God. It's meant to undermine your my uh, belief in God. And there came a time in my life where I'm like, well, I'm just, I see it for what it is. I'm done with this. Uh, these people don't even care if what they're saying is true or not. It, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter how out far and left field it really is. It makes no sense. It doesn't even hold up to science itself. These people don't care about science. These people don't care about what's true. This isn't about science. This isn't about truth. This isn't about any of that. This isn't about knowledge. This is about undermining God. That's it. And one of the things we see about Satan, he doesn't care. It doesn't matter how irrational the lie is. It doesn't matter how foolish it is. This is what he does. He's the father of lies. And it's a game changer when you learn to see that. It'll change the way you see news and why we hear all the crazy things we hear. It'll change the way when you look at what's happening in this fallen world and how the public school system worldwide is used to indoctrinate uh, our kids to believing things that ultimately lead to the, 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 the big belief that God is not real. It is a calculated attack and it's lies. And for each of us as individuals, we've got to get it settled in our heart that this is spiritual war. It happens in the heart. It happens in the mind. And it's, it's all about getting us to turn on God. Number three this morning. What we see so clearly already in the first two chapters of Job is that there is a great cost. To shut the mouth of the accuser. Job chapter 2. This is the last time we hear about Satan having anything to say about Job. You want to silence Satan in your life? There is a great cost to be paid. You want to shut the mouth of the accuser? Prove to him that nothing could ever get you to turn your back on God? There is a great cost to be paid. You want to shut the mouth of the accuser against you and your integrity? Prove to him once and for all that your faith in God is unwavering. There was a great cost to be paid. You want to prove that you'll follow God until the day that you die? There is a great cost to be paid. All your excuses must be taken away. All possible ulterior motives must be removed. But bless God, there is a time when his mouth is shut, at least against Job. It can be shut, at least against you. Nothing that Satan could ever do to Job could get Job to turn on God. Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. What kind of a man would be so committed to God that he would say something like that? The answer is a man that actually knows God. That's it. What kind of person would truly get to the place they'd say, though he slay me, yet will I serve him? The answer is the person who actually knows God. That's who. And it's people like that who are the few that shut the mouth of the accuser who says, 
God, people won't really worship you if they knew who you were. God, people won't really be faithful to you. You take all that they have and they'll turn on you. It's people like Job who shut the mouth of the accuser. As I begin seeing what I'm sharing with you over the last four to five months studying this book of Job, it changed who my heroes were. Changed. I thought about old DJ and Jennifer Alien. DJ was here, he'd tell you that he, he struggled hard during the loss of his second son. And it, it took some time for him to come back. But he's back. He's one of the most faithful people you'll ever meet. But I thought about his wife, one of the most awesome pictures I've had in my mind. I, I will never, ever forget. Their baby is dying. There is no hope for, 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 it's really just waiting. They're waiting and waiting and waiting for their baby to die. Their second son that they've lost basically at birth. One at birth. And another several months after or nearly a year later. And I'll never forget because you know I stand right here. She'd just come and she'd kneel right down here. And she'd just put those hands up in the sky. While the rest of us stayed in our seats. Most of us with our hands down having no idea the pain that they were under. But she'd come and she'd kneel and she'd worship. Shutting the mouth of the accuser. Demonstrating to God that there are a people who believe in his goodness no matter what they endure, and they will raise their hands to the God alone who deserves their praise. And I thought about Brendan Rainey. Most of you are familiar with his story. It's honestly the last six months of Brendan's life that forced me into this study. My God, I just need some answers. I need to understand what's going on here. And I spent months and months looking at the thing I'm trying to show you. And I watched a, 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 a friend... A young man, a young father, a young husband, knowing he's about to leave this world. And with me, I'm just telling you, I mean, he never got angry. He never got mad. He certainly never cursed God. He didn't understand why he was going through what he was going through. But he consistently, consistently demonstrated a sincere heart of gratitude and thankfulness and praise to God. Even saying, I wouldn't be where I am spiritually if it weren't for this dang disease. That what God, what was meant for evil in my life, God used it for good to bring me closer to God. And when I understand the great big battle that's waging around us, that we are being watched. We are on this playing field and we are being watched by, by God and His angels and by Satan and the fallen angels. And we are being watched and we are part of this great big eternal thing that is happening. And part of our role is to bring God honor and glory. And one of the only ways we can do that in its purest form is when you strip us of all of our blessings and all of our things and all of our toys. And when you allow pain into our life, it's then and only then can we prove we believe what we say we believe. God is good because God is good. 
He is holy. He is high and lifted up. He changes not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the eternal creator God. And he alone is worthy of my praise always, now, and forever. No matter what I endure in this life. It's those who have endured such things as I just mentioned that I see as the real heroes of the faith. Most people quit. Unfortunately, what Satan said of Job is true of most people. Thank God it was not true of Job. Job did not turn on God. I want to close, and and I want you to consider, as I've already said, how consistent this strategy of Satan has been throughout the ages. Bring great trauma upon God's people in an attempt to get them to turn on God. Consider, and I actually have a handful of things I'm going to go through here. But as I was doing this piece, I thought about doing a whole entire sermon on this because we could. There are hundreds of martyrs that we could talk about this morning who paid the cost to prove their faithfulness to God. And all of them, were, Satan was trying to force them to just recant, just stop, just give up. The prophet Jeremiah was hated, beaten, and imprisoned. Most believe that the prophet Isaiah was sawn in two, cut in two, alive. Hebrews 11.37 is most likely a reference to Isaiah's death. Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, was stoned to death. Stephen was stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. John the Baptist was beheaded in Matthew 14. James was put to death by Herod in Acts chapter 12. Nearly all of the founding fathers of the New Testament church were martyred for their faith. John Wycliffe was burned alive at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church for distributing the Bible in 1536. Polycarp was cruelly put to death by fire and sword because he refused to renounce Jesus Christ. The list of martyrs, folks, can go on and on. Blood that has been shed by those unwavering, faithful men and women of God. And the one thing that they all had in common was they could have saved their life if they would have just shut their mouths up. If they would have just stopped, turned their back on God, and said, I'll keep my mouth shut. And with all of them, we see the same consistent strategy of Satan. Push them hard enough, push them hard enough, push them hard enough. They'll they'll give up on you, God. They'll give up on you, God. They're going to turn on you, God. Stephen will not continue forward. When he realizes they pick up those stones, he'll shut his mouth. No, he won't. James is going to turn. The disciples are going to turn. Jesus isn't there with them anymore. He's ascended to heaven. They're all on their own. Herod, you push him far enough. He will recant. No, he won't. I studied these people this week in preparation of this sermon. 
seeing the pain that they were willing to endure. And yet these faithful followers instead blazed the path of righteousness. They showed us the depth that true faith in God can take us through. And in doing so, they silenced the mouth of the accuser. Can I say that, you know, we're not all being tested in such a way um, as these people. I, I want to acknowledge that, right? Not, not, not all of us are enduring what Job went through. Job was hand-selected by God because Job was the most righteous man on the face of the earth. And God was pleased with Job. And God had a special plan for Job's life. Who wants to sign up for that special plan? But it was God's special plan for Job's life. Now every time that you and I are enduring heartache and sorrow, it's not as if somehow God was up there and said, okay, Satan, you can inflict that one. Okay, you can inflict that one. Most of the pain and sorrow that we go through is simply the result of living in a fallen world. It's simply the result of living in a world where sin and sickness and death reign. I mean, death comes to all of us. Sickness comes to all of us. And so... It's not necessarily, understand, I'm not saying that Satan is individually, every time that we suffer, you know, smiting you with something and smiting you with something. I'm not saying that. But the principle remains that the general trauma and destruction that he has caused is meant to produce the same result in our lives where we turn on God and question God's goodness and question God's character and we turn on God. That's what I'm telling you. And this week though, as I was studying a lot of these people, these martyrs of the faith, and I'm in my own mind and in my own heart, I think they were targeted. I think the disciples were targeted specifically by Satan. I think Polycarp and John Wycliffe and the list of the martyrs could go on. I think they were targeted supernaturally. I think what they endured was worse than what most of us will ever endure in all of our lives. That's what I think. And as I was studying these people and I was truly, uh, uh, I, the respect that developed in my heart as I was examining their lives Folks, I'm just going to tell you where my mind went. This is what I wrote down as I'm writing my notes. Meanwhile, we're over here playing in the shallows, trying to convince people that if they'll come to church, we have good coffee. Where are the real men and women of God these days? Are there any left? The fathers and mothers of our faith shed their blood so that the church might stand and that the word of God might not be stopped. Meanwhile, we're over here watching folks leave the church, walking out on God because somebody did something they didn't like. That's where my heart and my mind went. And I'm just telling you, it's real, folks. Where is the unwavering commitment to God? When will we wake up and realize we are in a spiritual war? And the, the goal of that war is to get us to be unfaithful in our living, unfaithful in our 
uh, our commitment to the body of Christ, unfaithful in the giving of, of our time and our talents and our treasures, unfaithful of our worship to God. That's the goal. And it's like we've got to convince people that there's an actual benefit for you. You're going to end up better off than you were if you'll come to our church. What? If I even take that bait and head down that road, all of a sudden this is about you. Let me tell you why you need to be faithful to church, faithful to God, faithful to the things of God. Because God is God. Because He is Almighty God. He is the Creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the Judge of the living and the dead. And you will give an account to Him for your life. He is worthy of your worship. He is the only one that can save. That's why you need to be faithful to Him. There's no other reason. And we've got to guard our hearts as Christians against coming up with other reasons. The music's good. The preaching's good. Coffee's delicious. The snacks are great. There has got to be a certain degree of unwavering just faithfulness. This is about God, folks. Get your eyes off of the shallows. Come out of the little, you know, the, the shallows of the water and get into the deep things of God and see Him for who He is. And I will argue that that is the only way that we will be victorious in the face of spiritual battle. That's the only way. Because if the reason and the motive for your faithfulness is what you get out of the deal, you wait until all of a sudden life happens and it will happen. And all of a sudden you're not getting what you thought you deserved out of this deal. You've put so much in, God owes you. And he ain't paying up. And all of a sudden it's all right. well this whole thing ain't worth it. And you walk right out the door with the millions who have gone on before you. I'm going to ask our worship team if you guys would get in place. This is a difficult sermon series to teach and preach because... I, I mean, in part, because we just don't want to hear it. In part, nobody wants even the, the visual of the truth. That in the purest way of me proving my allegiance to God, that means I've got to be stripped of all of my toys and all of my things that make me feel good and make me happy. And, and, and in our flesh, we do not want to give that up. It's a hard truth because... Uh, it doesn't really end on a happy note until the end. I think this sermon series is going to be five, five of them, five sermons. And the fifth one, when we get to the fifth one, is when we talk about in the end. Next week, we get a look at Job's idiot friends. I'm thinking about that, making that the title of the sermon, When Your Friends Are Idiots. <laughs> but what we're going to see is, these were sincere friends who cared enough to come, who cared enough to counsel Job, who cared enough to be there, but still believed 
the ridiculous concept of the prosperity gospel that if Job had actually not done anything wrong, God wouldn't allow this in his life. And so all of Job's friends next week are like, what's the truth, Job? What's your secret sin? You want to know why your children died? Because they sinned. Like, who wants to hear that in the mess? And we know it's all not true. But that's what Job's friends tell him. And next week, I'm going to deal with chapters 3 through like 25. And so I want to encourage you to read at least chapters 3 through 14. They're not long chapters. They're pretty quick. We now see the conversation between Job and his friends. And when you get to chapter 15, they all just say it again. What happens is, I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but what happens is Job's friends, they tell Job how they feel. And Job's like, listen, guys, nothing's, you're, you're wrong here. And so then they're like, well, he must have not heard us the first time. And so they all come back around for round two, starting in chapter 15. And they're like, you are wrong with God. And this pain that's come upon you is your fault. We see now Satan step off the scene. And people come in who have believed his lies. It's going to take me a whole sermon to draw it out next week. I can't wait. But it's hard stuff. This ain't the type of stuff that makes you want to skip off and say glory to God over. It's the reality of spiritual warfare. It's hard, and most people fail here. And then when we see God answer Job, oh my. I promise you this. I mean it. Most of you, 90% of you, maybe more, are going to have a difficult time understanding how does God talk to Job that way after all that Job has done for God? In this pampered and pandered age that we're in, you'll have a hard time understanding Sermon 4. So what is the response, right? If we aren't to skip off, we aren't to leave this place with this great sense of just happiness, what is the response to a message like this? What is the response to Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2? Here's the answer. The response is a settled resolution that it is time to embrace the spiritual war in my life. And I am done getting pushed to and fro every time something goes wrong in my life. I'm done allowing the enemy and trauma in my life to cause me to question God. I'm I'm not going to waver left or right. I'm going to settle it in this heart of mine and in this mind of mine that I'm going to be faithful to God. There's nobody on this earth. There's no spirits on this earth. There's no devils on this earth that could ever thwart me or change my mind. I'm making up my heart and I'm making up my mind that though he slay me, yet will I serve him. And if I have to do it all alone, I will do it all alone. That's the response to this, folks. 